Apparently he has offered his services to the White House. Basically, mm. let me talk to Putin. Let me see if I can help here. And the White House is basically extremely skeptical. And they're like, okay, friend. All right, you want to try? That's fine. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, August 4th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, trying to insert himself into the Ukraine-Russia war as a peacemaker, and what the U.S. thinks about MBS putting on his diplomacy hat as the war drags on. And later, Lauren Sherman joins Ben for an inside look at the activist investor trying to squeeze more money out of Gucci and a possible fantasy fashion merger on the horizon. We'll talk about all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Friday, everybody. The weekend is almost here. I hope you're enjoying the dog days of summer. And, you know, here at, at Puck, uh, we like to say the quiet part out loud. There are no slow news days in August. That's always just like a, a myth that keeps getting punctured. And for evidence of that, I would like to point to Tuesday's edition of The Best and the Brightest, penned by Julia Yaffe, who joins me right now. And it was chock full of news, starting with something I learned from your email, Julia, that Mohammed bin Salman, MBS from Saudi Arabia, is apparently offering his services to try to bring home detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who's been held in Moscow since March. I mean, my first thing when I saw that was <laughs> Khashoggi. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So where are you hearing this from? 
are his efforts being welcomed? Are they effective? And holy shit, is this guy the biggest hypocrite in the world? Right. I was like, oh, you want to get a journalist out of prison? <laughs> Alive? Okay. Uh, basically, MBS is all over the place trying to position himself as a big diplomat and uh, deal maker, not just in the region, but in the world, and to position Saudi Arabia as a major player. So he has been involved, for example, in talks to bring home the hundreds of thousands of kidnapped Ukrainian children mm -hmm. that were kidnapped by Russians and held in various camps and forcibly given up for adoption to Russian families. At some point, I think this week or next, there's going to be a summit. Um, Saudi Arabia, MBS is hosting this summit at Jeddah on the Red Sea for Ukraine and for various other countries uh, to talk about how to reach peace in this war, how to reach an end to this war if Russia is not invited. Mm -hmm. But clearly mm -hmm. he's making a play to be a big player, a big diplomatic player on the world stage. And apparently he has offered his services to the White House. I'm paraphrasing. Basically, mm -hmm. let me talk to Putin. Let me see if I can help here. And the White House is basically extremely skeptical. And they're like, okay, friend. All right. You want to try? That's fine. But, you know, they don't think he can do anything. And I think they're mm -hmm. right. And um, they don't really want to talk about it because they think it's just, you know, MBS wanting to be seen as helping, mm -hmm. even though he probably isn't doing much of anything. Because, I mean, who really is able to tell Putin what to do? It's definitely not MBS. Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia has been accused of sports washing through the live golf tournament and other things, soccer as well. They've been accused of using their money to paper over all their human rights violations in a variety of ways. And this feels like a another, I don't even know the term for it, but... uh Diplo washing yeah. his own reputation. Yeah. And also, you alluded to it at the beginning, which is, you know, he's going to get one journalist out after having had one killed, dismembered, buried around various parts of Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's quite rich. But I don't even know that it's so much as Diplo washing as it is. There's a sense in the Middle East that after Obama and Trump didn't really do much to change this either, but that there's a kind of vacuum in the Middle East and the U.S. has kind of pulled back from the region after its great successes. And other players are stepping up. You know, there was China stepping in to hammer out a deal between sworn enemies, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, mm -hmm. You have Putin, who became very close with Bibi Netanyahu. And basically, I think people see space to make a play to show that they also that they're big boys that they belong at the same table mm -hmm. with joe biden and secretary blinken and macron and rishi sunak etc like all these big western leaders or mm -hmm. you know and xi jinping to show that they are in the same kind of weight category julia you wrote something really smart for puck this week about the quote israel model i'm going to read your lead from your piece if you've ever been anywhere near Washington in recent months and spent any time talking about Ukraine to any of its foreign policy wonks, you will have heard the term Israel model bandied about. What is the Israel model? Why should we care? So the very, very short answer is that it's basically arming Ukraine to the teeth the way Israel is armed to the teeth to basically deter 
attacks in the future so that even if uh, some kind of ceasefire deal is reached in this war, it would deter, hopefully, Russia from attacking again, right? Because that's one of the concerns is that even if a ceasefire is reached, even there, if there are some kind of talks that end this war now, that this would just end it for now, that there would be that Russia would just regroup and attack again. The longer version of that answer is that it would also codify the relationship into U.S. law between America and Ukraine, mm-hmm. which is not a treaty ally, but is a close partner of the U.S., also of France, of Germany, of the U.K., Poland, the Baltic states, etc. And the idea is to have these bilateral agreements, and specifically here I'm talking about a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and Ukraine to do basically what we do with Israel. There are these MOUs, Memoranda of Understanding, that are Mm -hmm. renewed every 10 years that set up funding for those 10 years that Israel can count on and knows it's coming, knows what it's going to be used for. And that funding has to, by law, maintain Israel's qualitative military advantage in order to preserve that deterrent value. Basically, what you have in Ukraine is that the aid is coming in spurts and mm-hmm. they're getting like a you know a swag bag every time essentially with like a bunch of different things in them a bunch of different platforms that soldiers have to learn how to operate you know mm-hmm. a leopard tank and an abrams tank and a this and a that this would be like for the next 10 years you will have you can count on this much money to buy this kind of equipment you can also count on this much aid to invest like we did in israel for a long time to invest in your domestic arms manufacturing so that you are more self-sufficient and also so that you don't have to keep begging for more and more aid, right? It's hard to do and it's hard to plan a war long-term and this is going mm-hmm. to be a very long war as we can see. Mm-hmm. And hopefully again, it would it would basically harden Ukraine and make it harder to attack it in the future. Of course, the Israel model, people will say is a little bit flawed because Russia I mean, has nukes. in terms of applying it to Ukraine, <laughs> not opening that can of worms, just <laughs> shoot me instead. <laughs> it's an imperfect analogy, right? Because the idea for Israel was to maintain a qualitative military advantage that offsets the numbers advantage that the surrounding Arab states had over Israel, which is much smaller. But Israel's mm-hmm. a nuclear power, and you know. Uh, Syria and Lebanon and Egypt or not, mm-hmm. whereas Ukraine is not just smaller than Russia, but also is fighting the biggest, you know, the, the country with the biggest nuclear arsenal. So it's mm-hmm. always, you know, there's, you're never going to have a qualitative military advantage there. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And, and then the last thing is to basically, is this policy is being created with an eye toward 2024 and should Joe Biden not win a second term? You know, and if Trump is president in 2024, then this would be basically Trump proofing. Like he won't be able to go in and say, you know what, I'm not sending any more money to Ukraine. He mm-hmm. won't be able to do that if this is kind of enacted now. Yeah. You call the Israel model, uh, quote, Trump proofing foreign policy around the war. Um, just to end it on that note, actually, the New York Times and Siena have basically one of the gold standard polls. uh, And they did a poll of the GOP presidential race the other day. And 
57% of Republicans support providing additional economic and military support to Ukraine. 37% oppose it. But that core opposition, like it's mostly like Trump supporters. Um, and so like if Trump is president, like it does seem likely that he would pull back on aid to Ukraine. Right. Except that if, as this policy is being created, basically would have some congressional buy-in, right? Like right now, mm -hmm. so much of what we send to Ukraine is through presidential drawdown authority. Like it doesn't have to go through Congress or if it goes mm -hmm. through Congress, it's just like a package here and a package there. This would be something that Congress doesn't have to approve, but could approve. And it would likely have quite a bit of buy-in because there is still a core, kind of a mainstream core, especially in the Senate, but in, in the House as well, uh, that support Ukraine. So it would also proof it from the Matt Gateses and the Lauren mm -hmm. Boeberts of the world, who I learned represents Aspen in Congress. That's nuts. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Hunter Thompson no. would be ashamed. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. When we come back, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about Gucci. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, joined by the peerless Lauren Sherman. Hello. Hi, Ben. Lauren, one of our favorite pastimes here at Puck has been speculating about mergers and deals and all the industries we cover. And obviously, one of the most fascinating questions in your corner of the world has been whether anyone in our lifetime is going to rival LVMH, the fashion mega mega conglomerate. But there's definitely been some agitation among investors and some of LVMH's smaller rivals, including Bluebell Capital, the activist investor that previously targeted Richemont, which owns a bunch of hard luxury brands. And now Bluebell is embedded in Caring, which owns brands like Gucci. Let's start there with this recent news that, that Bluebell has taken the stake. What are you hearing about what they actually want to happen at Caring? So Bluebell is a really interesting activist investor firm. They, they launched in 2019. They're based in London and they wanted to take that whole idea of pressuring companies from the outside that the U.S. has done so successfully and bring it to Europe where it's not as common of a practice. And so they took this stake in in Richemont a few years ago, really pushed them to get rid of Uxnetta Porter Group, which was underperforming and also just not a good fit for their overall company. And they were successful. Richemont did a deal with Farfetch. They're almost rid of YNAP now. And so they moved on to Caring, which is the only real rival. And you could say Richemont is also a rival. The top three 
luxury groups are LVMH, Richemont, and Caring. And there's also OTB in Italy, but that's private and and still kind of smaller and different vibe. But LVMH, Richemont, Caring are the big groups. At one point, they were all sort of I'm not maybe not the same size, but like playing in the same field. And then LVMH just sort of shot up, especially with the acquisition of Tiffany, which just just blew it out of the water. It's so much bigger than Caring. It's so much bigger than Richemont and. Mm-hmm. Caring in particular has spent the last 10 years, and we've talked about this before, pruning its portfolio to be a pure luxury play. The challenge is that if one of the big brands, and especially Gucci, which is the major driver, not only of growth, but of revenue at the overall business, if it's struggling at all, that brings down everybody in in a way because Caring doesn't have that many businesses. It has, I think, it definitely has under 20 brands. So Bluebell wants from Caring in particular is for them to like fix Gucci. And they already had hired a new designer, I don't know, six months ago. Alessandro McKaylee exited almost a year ago. This new designer's in. The CEO of Gucci had been at the company for 18 years he had been at Gucci for, I think, eight running Gucci. Before that, he ran Bottega Veneta. He's super successful. He made a ton of money and it was time for him to leave no matter what. But I think that the Bluebell position in caring may have nudged along that process a bit because as we saw when caring announced the management changes, there was not a permanent CEO name for Gucci, which you would expect that given... I don't know, just the planning that goes into these these sorts of changes. So you, you feel like that move was a little bit rushed, like it was in response to Bluebell kind of nudging people inside the boardroom to, to do this faster? I definitely think it was a factor. I think that there was there's also the greater market pressure. There is just a lot going on within that business, the caring business overall, that there needed to be changes made. And from what I have heard from talking to people at Caring, talking to people connected to Bluebell, is that they really are happy with the changes that were made and they are confident that more changes will be made. But their focus is very, very much on Gucci. There was a report in Reuters that said that Bluebell was really pushing for this caring Richemont merger. And from what I know, that is a secondary desire. And just a little background, the caring Richemont dream has been a thing in luxury in the markets with investors uh, probably for a decade. Like everybody wants them to merge. Richemont owns Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpel. They are experts in hard luxury. Caring owns Gucci and Saint Laurent and Bottega Veneta and Balenciaga. They are experts in fashion and ready to wear soft luxury goods. And the combination, that really does start to feel like a real competition against LVMH. And so it's it's sort of this pipe dream that the whole industry wants, except for maybe Johan Rupert, the chairman of Richemont. <laughs> Well, sure. Well, let's let's talk about all of that. Like you said, that the primary interest of Bluebell right now is organizational and, and personnel changes at Gucci. They want to extract more money from that business, which comprises something like fifty plus percent of all the revenue at Caring. So if they if they can sort of supercharge Gucci, they're going to supercharge that business. They're going to get a return on their investment. But this Caring Richemont tie up that's always been fantasized about. Do you think the timing is actually right for something like that to happen in the market? I mean, setting aside whether Rupert might actually want it or, or, or ever want to sell, 
Would achieving that kind of scale actually allow that combined entity to take on LVMH? It would give them more... Ammunition isn't the right word, but it would just make them more able to go up against LVMH in terms of, you know, this all comes back to real estate and supply chain and all of that stuff. And and Richman and Caring have both been investing in supply chain and the upstream, as we like to call it in in apparel and, and fashion, but it would just give them more support. Right now, they're being trounced by this company that is bigger and bigger and bigger that keeps getting the best leases and caring caring's brands matter to retailers they matter to outdoor malls all of that stuff so it's not like they're totally out of the picture but a caring richemont combination would just make it easier for them to win at all these tiny little things that make LVMH so successful and also allow them to you know caring just bought its first beauty brand, a fragrance brand called Creed, and it's going to get into owned beauty more. A brand like Gucci could be a huge beauty business and they could own that. It could be a tremendous upside for them. And so having the brands that Richemont has and the leases Richemont has and all of that, would it would just give them more armor against LVMH totally dominating and taking over. And the other thing is like a brand like Chloe that is owned by Richemont that there have been rumors for years. And I actually was doing, I was reporting on Chloe a couple of months ago because they had a designer changeover. And a lot of the people within Chloe were like, I know it, we're preparing for a sale to Caring. And, you know, I mentioned it to people at Caring and they were like, we don't know anything about that. But the thing about a brand like Chloe is it's a fashion brand that Richemont owns. It could be much bigger than it actually is. It's a globally recognized brand. It's had success in the last 15 years with handbags and shoes, but not only is it hard to get a good lease at one of these, you know, shopping streets, but it's also just the real estate in a department store goes to the LVMH brands. It goes to LVMH brands. And so it just makes sense on so many levels, not only from the market's going to love it because it's a bigger company and more revenue and more hard luxury is highly profitable. Handbags are highly profitable. It it kind of takes the pressure off of the fashion and ready to wear to actually make money. But also, it's just a practical choice. Lauren, you, you've written in the past that you'd be sort of skeptical that the billionaire Johan Rupert, who owns Richemont, would actually want to give up control of this company. That people, people have come to him and asked about buying it, and he always turns them down. Do you think that's changing at all? Do you, do you think he wants to hold on to this company for a lot longer? So none of these guys want to retire. I think he's probably in his mid-70s. They all think they're the best and and that they do it best. And in some ways, they're correct. <laughs> in other ways, they're not. And he has a very close management team that runs the day-to-day, but he is deeply involved in... If you work at one of the Richemont-owned companies, you go quarterly to see him and he reviews your marketing. He reviews... He's very, very involved. So that's one reason. Is he going to let that go? I don't know. At some point, he will want to. The bigger issue for Rupert is there is not a clear succession plan. This is not the Arnault family. His son is involved. I think his son is on the board but it's not the same. 
he doesn't have five kids vying to be the CEO. And there's some interim people who could, you know, with the Hermes family, what they did was they had an outside person be the CEO until one of the family members was ready to to take that position. And I think at LVMH, that potentially could happen as well. It depends on when Arnaud decides he wants to retire. He said in a French paper the other day that he might stay until he's 90. So it may never happen. Right. You've got, you've got Alex and, and Delphine who are sort of waiting in the wings. Yeah. And they kind of go, who's the top? But then they're the younger sons and they're apparently really good too. So we'll see. I mean, most of them are under 30. So who knows? But But anyway, Rupert doesn't have that. And so I was talking to someone from LVMH in Europe a couple of months ago, and they were like, he doesn't really have a choice. He's going to have to do it at some point. So I think, and he has publicly said that Pino in particular has come to him and talked about a caring Richemont merger. When that happened, caring was in the better position and Richemont was struggling more. Now, caring is in the slightly weaker position and Richemont is doing really well. So if it happened right now, it would look more like a merger, even though caring would definitely be the sort of governing part of it because Pino owns, I think, 46% of Caring, whereas Rupert only owns 11% of Richemont. He has 51% of the voting rights, but only owns 11% or 10% of the business. So it's interesting. I think it's one of those things everyone really wants to happen. So I, I assume something else totally out of left field will happen and not this, but it does make a lot of common sense on on many levels. And it just depends. From what I know about Rupert, he's a he's a really interesting character. He is not like his French CEO counterparts. And he's he's South African and he's really unique. And I don't know. Will he be able to let go? I think in some ways he's let go more in terms of the day-to-day running of the business. But then on the other hand, he's a super micromanager in that he still makes a lot of the decisions on every brand. So whether or not he will make that decision or he'll be forced to make it, I don't know. But right now, the only activist investor circling them is fine with them getting rid of YNAP and they're just focused on this Gucci thing. Now, if the Gucci transformation doesn't work, maybe this will come up again and be pushed further. But who knows? You know, I love a deal. So I hope it happens. <laughs> 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 Me too, just because it's, it's fascinating to watch all this stuff play out in real time. It does seem like Bluebell is maybe too small of an activist to make a deal of this magnitude happen when there are still some players who are maybe not ready to see it happen. But certainly something's in the water. There's a lot of interest in Wall Street for this to happen one of these days, and um, we'll be watching and reporting. Lauren, thanks as always for coming by. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.